Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Long ago, received an email from a member of his church, and the question that the emailer wanted to ask was, Preacher, why don't you preach more often about sin? And usually when a preacher gets that kind of request, that's not random. The person who's asking that has something in particular in mind. Usually it's somebody else's specific sin problem. It's like they're trying to call in a rhetorical airstrike, you know, to hit somebody else right in the, in the fields, you know, like right where they need some attention. And so my preacher friend saw through that old trick and wasn't going to fall for that routine. And so he replied to the emailer and said, you know, I would be more than happy to preach more often about sin. Would you tell me what your sin is so that I can happily preach about it? And as far as I know, the emailer never wrote back. Probably because that's not what they had in mind. Probably because they didn't want to tell the preacher exactly what their sin was but also because the idea of sitting through a church service, listening to a sermon that was literally written with you in mind, literally written to address your shortcomings, that probably doesn't sound very appealing to anyone. Sin's not that comfortable to talk about when it strikes close to home, right? It's unpleasant when we start talking about and messing with and dealing with and addressing our own failures and our weaknesses and our disobedience. It's a lot more palatable, a lot more pleasant, and a lot more popular to focus on the parts of Jesus' teaching when he said things like, come to me, all of you who are tired, and I will give you rest, right? Like that's the part that everybody's happy for us to talk about. But if we're going to pay attention to Jesus's teaching in its entirety, if we're going to pay attention to the entire scope of everything that Jesus came to say and do, like I believe we should, then we cannot ignore and we cannot deny the fact that Jesus took sin seriously. He talked about it. He called it out. In fact, two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, tell us that as soon as Jesus was ready to go public with his ministry, after he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, he said, after he spent some time alone in the desert reflecting and eventually being tempted to abandon the mission, These writers tell us that when Jesus was ready to go public with his ministry, he began by going village to village preaching this message. He said, repent of your sins because the kingdom of heaven is near. And so we're kicking off a series of messages today where we're going to talk about sin. And we're going to talk about my sin and we're going to talk about your sin. We're going to take sin seriously because Jesus takes sin seriously seriously. 
But I need you to know from the outset, and I'm going to try to remind you of this in every week of this series, that in taking sin seriously, Jesus also always offers an opportunity and an invitation to live into something better. That the Heavenly Father did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, John 3.17 says. That when Jesus takes sin seriously, it's because of His heart for us, because of His concern and His compassion for us. When Jesus takes sin seriously, He's trying to steer us in a better direction. Jesus always responds to sin with redemption and grace. And so I need you to know from the outset of this series that as we talk about sin, the goal here is not to send someone into a guilt trip or to make you feel despair about your situation. We're going to be talking about sin in a way that helps us examine ourselves more realistically. We're going to talk about it in a way that helps us to recognize our own self-destructive patterns and habits and hang-ups. And we're going to talk about how to accept Jesus' invitation for healing and freedom. Now, as an outline for this series, we're going to be talking about a traditional list of sinful patterns that has come to be known as the seven capital Vices. Now, you've probably never heard that phrase before, but there's a related phrase. You've likely, likely heard a reference to the seven deadly sins. This has come up in popular culture. There's been movies that have made, been made about this, songs that have been written about this, ad campaigns that have been written about this. And actually, the seven capital, capital vices and the seven deadly sins, those are the same list. It's the same list of problems, but what we call this list makes a difference. The way we refer to this list changes what we're saying for a couple of reasons. First, first off, it's important to understand that all of the items on this list, this is not a list that's made up of specific actions. This is not a a list of verbs. This is a list of pitfalls. It's made up of nouns. It's a list of habits. It's a list of character traits. It's a list of desires and appetites and troubles. And it's also important to know that this list does not appear in any one spot in the Scripture, although each and every item on this list is addressed thoroughly in the Scripture. But you can't turn to one verse in the Bible and find a list of the seven deadly sins or the seven capital vices. There's no place that any of the writers of Scripture made this list and wrote it out and explained it for us. But throughout Christian history, people who were tuned in to God, spiritual people, have come to recognize the vices on this list as the desires and the appetites that lead humans to struggle with sin. We're talking about the kind of internal nature that expresses itself in sin. In fact, historically, Christians have referred to this list as the capital vices, and that's not in the sense of capital punishment, although that's probably where they came up with the idea to call them the seven deadly sins because they're capital vices. But the reality is, in this sense, capital means like the source, the, the fountainhead. The, this is the source or the precursor for sinful human behavior. 
And so there's some wisdom for us. There's some value for us in studying this ancient list of vices and learning to recognize some of the common ubiquitous patterns that many people struggle with. And I'm confident that as we look at this list as a mirror, every single one of us is going to see ourselves and our struggle in this list because when we can recognize, the reason this is valuable for us, when we can recognize the destructive patterns that people tend to struggle with, the kinds of patterns that people throughout every century and every civilization and every culture have struggled with, when we can recognize the big categories of what trips humans up, then we can better identify, or we can identify better patterns to try to replace the destructive ones with. And so today, as we begin our journey through this series, we're going to begin by talking about a vice that maybe you've never heard of before. We're talking about the vice of vainglory. And I realize that sounds like an unfamiliar churchy kind of word, in fact, you, you may have never heard it before, and if you've seen a more modernized or more common list of the seven deadly sins, it's likely that vainglory wasn't on the list that you saw. It was probably replaced with a related but not exactly the same word, pride. And pride can be a problem. Pride is a major problem, and it comes up in these conversations, but pride and vainglory are different. Vainglory is the vice that Christians for over a thousand years have recognized as poisonous to the Christian soul, the human soul. You see, vainglory is the excessive, disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. Vainglory is that appetite that comes up inside of you that wants others to notice and appreciate and admire and approve of you and your effort. And we all know what this desire feels like. We all know what it's like to want to be recognized and honored for our accomplishments or for our exploits because it starts really young. I mean, spend five minutes in the play place at any McDonald's restaurant and you will eventually hear some four or five-year-old little toddler who has scaled the enormous height of going up to the second floor of the play place to get to the top of the slide. And they're yelling and saying, Mommy, Daddy, look at me. Because they want to be seen. They want to be congratulated. They want to be admired for their bravery and their courage at climbing to such an epic height. But that craving for being noticed isn't just a childhood thing. In fact, it's only, that's only the beginning. As we grow up in a crowded world, surrounded by other people who are being noticed for their accomplishments and their talents, as we grow up in this culture surrounded by other talented people, we can be drawn to all sorts of opportunities to stand out from the crowd. And so we might find ourselves obsessing about our image and our reputation, our clothing, our waist size, our bicep size, our haircut, our cars, our resume, our housekeeping ability, our lawn, our makeup, I mean, like we want people to notice these kinds of things, our grades, our athletic performance, our hair color, our complexion, any other number of things. When we talk about vainglory, we're talking about the impulse that makes us want to be known. 
the impulse that makes us want to be admired, appreciated, respected, and honored, maybe even envied for something that we have or something that we did. Vainglory can be expensive. It can cost you a lot. Vainglory can lead you to purchase things that you couldn't afford to buy, sometimes to impress people that you don't even know. I remember one time my family was invited to a friend's lake house down on Lake Travis, and we were all down at the waterfront swimming in this cove that was, you know, adjacent to the main body of the lake. And suddenly we all heard the roar of this enormous engine that was out on the main lake. And pretty soon coming around that corner, we could see this enormous boat that was traveling so fast. It was speeding by. It was about a half mile away from us. We were perfectly safe. But as it came into view, we saw this enormous boat that couldn't possibly be useful for anything on the water except going fast. Like that's what it's built to do. And that sounds fun. But we all stopped what we were doing and we were all watching as this, you know, unignorable sight was going by. And my friend who owned that home noticed what we were all noticing. And he said, you know, the guy that bought that boat spent $200,000 so that all of you would do what you just did. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know that boat owner's motives, but it doesn't sound that far-fetched to me because I've experienced that same kind of feeling. I've felt that same kind of concern about what even strangers think about me. This time last year, I had to go buy new tires for my beat-up 21-year-old pickup truck. And there were all these tire options that I could have chosen from, including some tires that were cheaper and some tires that had longer warranties on them than the, the set that I ended up buying. But I ignored some of those more sensible tires, and I picked a set that looked a little bit more aggressive. Not a lot, you know, not trying to go overboard but it looked a little bit more all-terrain, you know, for that drive between my house and the church office. <laughs> I picked something that looked a little tougher than the touring tires that I could have chosen that probably would have lasted longer. And some of that has to do with my own enjoyment. Some of it has to do with, that's just what I, I enjoy my truck looking like when I walk out to it because I have some pride in that. But the thing that makes vainglory different, the thing that makes vainglory different from pride is that vainglory needs to be seen by somebody else. Vainglory needs to be recognized by somebody else. A prideful person, a, a person that's simply dealing with pride might be content to enjoy the feeling of satisfaction, snobby satisfaction, when they've outdone all the other neighbors and nurtured a lawn that's nicer than any other lawn on the block. But the vainglorious person, the person that's wrestling with vainglory, will be disappointed if they get snubbed in the yard of the month contest because they need to be acknowledged. They need to be seen. They need to be noticed. Vainglory is about attention and, and, and approval and appearance, and we curate our image so that people will notice us at our best. And that preoccupation can lead us to excess, right? It can even lead us to dangerous extremes to impress other people. There was one study that came out that said in the 14 years from 2008 to 2021, worldwide 379 people died in the process of taking a selfie. 
379 people who put themselves in a dangerous position trying to curate their image that others were going to see online. And it sounds absurd to think that people would put themselves in harm's way to gather likes and follows and mentions, but Professor William Miller wrote that the flattery of others is narcotic and addicting. The flattery of others is narcotic and addicting. And you know that's true, right? Because you felt that too. I've felt that. I've felt myself leaning into that. I've felt myself desiring more of that. We all know that that's true. But the one thing that's unique about vainglory, out of all of the other vices on this list, out of all of the seven vices on the capital vices list, the one thing unique about this one is that vainglory can also lead you to do good things for the wrong reason. And that's just as much a problem. In fact, out of all the vices on the list, this one in particular, the reason I wanted to start with this one, is that this one in particular is a vulnerability for religious people. In Matthew chapter 6, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus issued a warning to those of us who are trying to navigate all that's going on in our hearts as we try to be obedient to God, Jesus issues this warning and says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly, he says. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do the way the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and the streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, the people who do that, the people who draw that attention to themselves and their good deeds, he says those people have received all the reward that they will ever get. But when you give, when you, as a follower of Jesus, give to someone in need, he says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which is, it, it, that's hyperbole, but he's trying to say, keep it on the down low. Don't make a big deal about it. Hide it even from those that are closest to you, he says. Give your gifts in private. And your Father, who sees everything, will reward you, he says. And when you pray, he goes on, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to, to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that being seen is all the reward that they will ever get for those prayers. But when you pray, when you pray, he says, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. And then your father who sees everything will reward you. And I'm convinced that when Jesus shared this teaching, when Jesus said these words, he was speaking to a crowd that was primarily made up of common folks. He was talking to people who didn't have a whole lot of social capital in their day, 
talking to people who didn't have an impressive religious pedigree, but he was sharing with them this, this deep truth about the goal and the nature of spirituality. He was telling them that being known as a person who does good things is not the point of doing good things. Being known and recognized and noticed and appreciated and honored by other people because you did something good, he says, that's not the point of doing something good. He says, in fact, when you do that and your goal, your angle, your heart, your inspiration for that good deed, when your goal is to be acknowledged, he says, that's, that's the only reward that you're going to get. You'll be acknowledged, but that's it. In fact, Jesus explains that trying to be noticed for your religiosity actually sabotages the spiritual value of your worship. It torpedoes every energy, every effort that you've made to try to honor God. You can do something that appears to be good for someone else, but if you're really doing it because of what you're going to get out of that, then you haven't really been sacrificial, right? I mean, the math just doesn't add up. And that's what I mean when I say that vainglory can be a particular risk for religious people. Because when you're trying to live a life for God, when you're interested in being a follower of God, you're going to do good things with your life, right? Like having a genuine faith is going to lead you to do good deeds for others. It's going to lead you to moments where you're serving, where you're giving, where you're sacrificing, where you're helping. It's going to lead you into all of these opportunities where you're doing something good for somebody else. But it's, it's a setup. It's a setup because at that moment when you're doing something good for somebody else, there's a pitfall that you have to be careful about. There's a snare that can trip you up. If you're using your piety and your generosity and your righteousness to impress other people, Jesus says those seemingly righteous acts, those don't even count on God's ledger. Those don't even count in God's estimation because you didn't do them for God. You did them for you. And what's even worse is that our attempts to manage and curate our image can adversely affect the spiritual life of those who are looking to us for an example. Our attempts to try to be impressive, our aim of trying to receive honor and recognition and attention for the good that we've done can actually sabotage our impact on those who are looking to us to show them the way. Later on in the book of Matthew, there's a moment when Jesus is having a very public confrontation with the religious leaders of his community, the priests and the pastors and the scholars who were admired for their precision obedience. But Jesus calls them out. Matthew 23, he says, beginning in verse 25, he says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees. Those are the leaders. And he says, hypocrites, these are fighting words, right? Hypocrites, he says, for you are so careful 
to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. He's referring here to ceremonial washing, ceremonial efforts that they make to make it look like they're following the law as well as anybody has ever done. He says on the inside though, even though you're doing all of the ceremonial washing, he says on the inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, he says. First, wash the inside of the cup and dish. And at this point, we're not just talking about dishes anymore. He says, first, wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Now, you can imagine. You can imagine what an offensive and dangerous way this was to talk to the power brokers in the society where Jesus lived. In fact, this tirade was ultimately a big part of what led the religious establishment to call for Jesus' execution not long after this. But he is taking them to task for focusing on their outward appearance of obedience without actually developing an obedient heart. He goes on in the next verses. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites. It sounds like just a repeat of what he just said, right? But he says, for you are like whitewashed tombs, like gravestones that have been freshly restored and painted, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity, he says. Outwardly, On the outside, with your curated reputation and image, he said, outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And you have to read this verse carefully to understand there's nothing wrong with appearing to be a righteous person on the outside. There's nothing wrong with doing good. There's nothing wrong with having the appearance of righteousness. In fact, in the first of those two sets of verses that we read, Jesus said, clean the inside first and then the outside will become clean, right? Having a clean outside is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But throughout human history, and this is so so evident in the pages of the Scriptures, God has always seen right through the facade of people who just want to be noticed and admired by others. God has always seen right through the mask, right through that front, right through that facade, when your real goal is for other people to say, wow, that's really impressive. Wow, way to go. And so what we find, what we find as we dive in and ask questions about this vice that's been handed down to us as a warning from all these centuries, generations of wise Christian people, what we find when we think about vainglory is that those who wish to achieve glory for themselves will empty themselves for a glory that feels empty in the end. It's never enough. In fact, the meaning of vain glory means empty glory. It's glory that doesn't satisfy, glory that doesn't sustain, glory that doesn't fill you up because it's not the kind of glory you were meant to receive. But God, God has a different plan, a different reward, a different intention 
for those who are not so concerned with curating their image in the face of other people. And God honors and God satisfies and God rewards those who live their lives for his approval rather than for the admiration of other people. God, Jesus continually promises, God has a reward in store for those who are willing to give in the quiet, to pray without making a big to-do, that God has a reward in store for those who aren't practicing their religion performatively, but who are practicing their religion genuinely. In fact, later on, decades later, as Paul was finding himself working with churches all across the south of Europe and helping them understand what it looks like to live out their faith, Paul spoke to people who were in difficult situations. He spoke to people who were living as slaves in a pagan culture. They were slaves to masters who were not followers of Jesus, but the slaves themselves were Christians, and they're trying to figure out, how do I live out this faith in this context? And here's what Paul told them, Colossians chapter 3. He said, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Perform your tasks, he says, as if the one who's going to come and check your work is God himself. God himself. He says in the next verse, remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master that you're serving, the master you're actually serving, is Christ himself. Christ himself. You serve an audience of one, Paul would say. And Paul wants these people who live in these difficult situations, these challenging situations, people who are feeling because they really are trapped in a situation they didn't choose. Paul wants them to know that God has promised to fulfill their deepest desires, the desire to be known, the the desire to be honored, the desire to be rewarded and acknowledged and accepted with unconditional love. But it starts, he says, it starts with living your life and performing every day's tasks for the one audience that counts. The audience of one living as if we're working for the Lord rather than for people. You know, it's difficult in our culture to avoid the temptation to try to curate your image. I appreciated in the last couple of years, there's, you know, no social media platform is perfect. All of them have pitfalls. But I appreciated in the last couple of years the rise of a social media platform some of you may be familiar with called Be Real. And the idea about Be Real 
is that rather than picking and choosing the highlight moments of your life to display and putting filters and and choosing the right pictures and getting to take and retake and situate yourself so that your life on social media looks perfect, rather than that, Be Real sends you a notice at a random time of day and says, you have two minutes to be real and show everybody what you're actually up to. And so it's awesome because when you flip through there, it's kids that are sitting in school, bored, trying to do math work, like, you know, and it's people that are like stuck in traffic. And it's people that are just doing mundane, everyday things. And it's not perfect. I mean, it's still, it's still there for other people to like and to notice and all of that kind of thing. But at the very least, what it's doing is saying, you don't have to curate your image for everybody else. You can be honest about who you are. You can be honest about what your life and your day and your schedule and your routine is like. You can be real and you can be enough. And wouldn't that be a spiritual message that would be good for us to hear? Wouldn't it be a spiritual message that would be good for us to reflect on and to embody and to believe that because of who we are in Christ, because of what God has said we are worth, that we're enough? That we don't have to seek out the accolades and the accommodations and all of the acknowledgments of the people who we want to have recognize us. We don't have to seek all of that out because the one reward that we truly want deep down, the one reward that we really need is to be known and accepted by our Creator, to be approved of by our Heavenly Father. And Jesus says the way to that approval is by living a a life of righteousness that's quiet, a life of righteousness that's not self-seeking, that's not self-congratulatory. It's a life of faithfulness and love and kindness and gentleness and self-control that's quiet, not doing it for anybody else. And so this morning and as we go through this series and as we talk about each of these different vices, I want to I want to make sure that I'm giving you some tools here And so I'm going to invite you to a challenge this week that's going to help you push back against the gravitational pull of vainglory in your own life because whatever your situation, whatever your network of people, whatever your environment, this is something that's going to challenge each and every one of us, especially, especially as we try to live our lives for God. But I want to invite you this week to do two things that can fight back against the temptation of vainglory. The first is, every day this week, I want to invite you to find a way to try to serve somebody without them knowing anything about it. Look for a way every day to try to do something of kindness for someone else that nobody else sees. And some of us, like, we're bent this way where we're thinking, if nobody saw it, did it really happen? You know, like, yes, it really happened. Because remember how many times Jesus kept saying, your Father who sees everything will see what you've done and reward you. 
And so I want to invite you into this challenge for this week. Every single day this week, look for opportunities to do something out of kindness to somebody else without being noticed, without being acknowledged, without being seen. It doesn't have to be for somebody you know. It can be for a stranger or vice versa. But look for a way, because this is about the battle going on in your own heart. Look for a way to push back against vainglory by doing something for somebody else without them saying thank you. Don't even give them the chance. And beyond that, beyond that, I want to tell you that one of the best ways that we can fight back against vainglory in our own hearts is by giving glory to others rather than holding on to it for ourselves. And so this week, you can also look for ways to give honor to somebody else to acknowledge somebody else's contribution, somebody else's sacrifice, somebody else's effort, somebody else's act of kindness. Look for a way, go out of your way to say, I appreciate what you have done. Because when we, when we treat glory like it's a zero-sum thing, like we have to hold on to ours or we'll run out and we can't share it too liberally or too freely or we could, we could run low. That's when vainglory becomes all about how much can I collect, how much can I hold, how much can I keep. But if we get into the habit, if we get into the habit like Jesus was in the habit of speaking words of encouragement, speaking words of gratitude and appreciation, I love when Jesus, Jesus ran into one person who, who wanted so badly to experience Jesus' work in their life. Jesus said, I've never seen anybody with this much faith in all of Israel. Jesus, I mean, Jesus was passing out compliments to folks, saying, I admire that. Be that kind of person so that as you walk through life, the, con- the constant search for glory for yourself will not take mastery over your heart. We're going to continue through this series to think about all of the ways that we can follow Jesus' example in these areas. We're going to find that in every one of these vices, there's a reciprocal virtue. There's a way that we can practice a better pattern, a better habit, a better goal for our lives. But Jesus is always the end. Jesus is always the target. Jesus is always our aim.